0: The yeshiva.net Names in Judaism and Torah are always significant. The Gemara tells us in Maseches Yomer, Reb Meir Dayek B'Shmo. Reb Meir would even tune in and focus on the name of a person. But generally names are considered meaningful and insightful. The Megillah that is read on Purim, Is called in Mishnayis and in Gemara, among the Chazal, and in the works of Halacha. Until today, we call it Megilas Esther, the scroll of Esther. That name, though, requires explanation. Obviously, Esther is one of the key characters in the entire story. But nonetheless, as the Megillah puts it, Maimer Mardechai Esther Esther followed the instructions of Mardechai. When the Megillah introduces first the Jewish angle into the story of Ahasuerus, it starts off, Ish Mardechai. There was a Jewish man, a Yehudi, who lived in Shushan Abir in the capital of the Persian Empire. Ushmay ben ben Shimi ben Kish And then the Megillah continues saying how Mardechai nurtured and took Esther into his home since she was an orphan, she had no father, she had no mother. And therefore, when they took Esther to the palace, Mardechai felt personal responsibility for her. every day Mardechai walked in the courtyard of the king to find out Esther to inquire on the welfare of Esther. And generally, as the Megillah describes, Esther remained loyal to the instructions, the guidance, the mentorship of Mordechai, both before this event, before she was taken as a queen to the Persian king, and afterwards. Of course, it's Mordechai who is the one who notified Esther first about the evil edict against her people and pleaded with her to go speak to Ahasuerus. And the way the Megillah sums it up is Maimer, Mardechai Esther Kasher Allah Mardechai. Esther was following the mentorship, the guidance of Mardechai. Thus, one would expect perhaps the Megillah to be called Megillas Mardechai or Megillas Mardechai, the Esther, the Megillah of Mardechai and Esther, Mardechai being such an instrumental part in the story as Esther was. Or maybe Megillas Esther, or Mardachai, since it's Esther who was the actual queen. But that's not the name. The name of the Megillah is exclusively Megillah's Esther. It's the story of Esther. Now, Chanukah, we have a Megillah. It's called Megillas Antiochus. <laughs> it's called Megillas Antiochus. It's read till today, and it's not about everywhere, but it's read in some communities on Chanukah, Megillas Antiochus. It just never made it into what's called Kisve HaKodesh, one of the books of Tanakh. The Megillah of Purim you would expect maybe to be called Megillah HaKashverish. He was the one who was the king. Maybe Megillah HaKashverish. But you want to focus not on the Gentile enemies of the Jewish people, Haman or Those who brought the salvation. It could have been called Megillah Purim. It could have been given another name representing the miracle. It could have been called in the name of Mordechai, the name of the salvation of the Jewish people. Ultimately, the name that was chosen by Torah was, and the name employed by Chazal throughout all of the generations, till today is Megillah's Esther. It's the book, the scroll of Esther. The Gemara Megillah, Tractate Megillah, the Tractate in Talmud dedicated to Purim, on page 7, Davzayan and of 7a tells the following story. Esther, after the story of Purim, sent a message to the sages. The sages of the time with a request. The request consisted of two words. Establish me for generations. What did she mean? Rashi explains. She asked them to take the events of Purim and turn it into a yomtiv, turn it into a holiday. Let it become a day of thanksgiving a day of gratitude, a day of celebration, a day of telling the story. And this was a message to the spiritual leaders of the Jewish people at the time, the Chachamim as they're known, the sages, the wise men, or sometimes we'll call them Chachmei HaSanhedrin, the sages of the Sanhedrin at that time. Klal Yisrael, the Jewish nation, was governed by a body of 71 members, which you would, might call the Jewish Supreme Court. We call them the Sanhedrin. Ordained, ordained by a by each one had to be ordained, person to person all the way back to Moshe Rabbeinu. So there was a direct, unbroken link from Moshe Rabbeinu, which is what always gave Jewish tradition its vibrancy and its sense of intimacy and reality. Because you can always point to the previous generation; there was an unbroken Messiah an unbroken tradition. Moshe himself appointed 70 sages to work with him in Parshas Baal And then for each generation, one of these 71 had to ordain others, Yahushua, and then throughout the generations, including in the days of Mordechai and Esther, which is the end of the 70 years of the Babylonian exile. The first temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar 586 before the common era, according to the general calendar, and approximately seven decades later, when the Jews are in Iran under the Persian Farsi Empire, which defeated the Babylonian Empire, where Nevuchadnezzar the monarch, destroyed the First Beit Hamikdash. But seven decades later, Babylonia was defeated. Babylonia, present-day Iraq, was defeated by Iran by Achashverosh, who was now the Persian em- Persian monarch. And in that era, there were also Sanhedrin. The chief, the leader, was Mordechai. You had personalities like Chagai, schariah Malachi, who are the last prophets of the Tanach. People like Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubavel, who would be the people making the first, the second Aliyah from exile from Babylonia back there to Israel to rebuild the second base Hamikdash. Esther sends a message to all of these sages with a request: Kavuni Establish my story as a timeless Jewish holiday. And you know what their response was? Absolutely not. Why? Why? Their words, Kina atmo aleinu bein umay sa'aylam. You will, you will trigger, you will arouse the fires of anti-Semitism. You will fan the embers, you will fan the flames of Jew hatred. Kina ireris Salenu. You will bring out jealousy, zealousness, negativity, and animosity among the nations of the world towards the Jewish people. It's better if Purim is hush, hush, hush. And as Rashi explains, what's this celebration going to be about? Haman hung, ten children of Haman hung. All of the enemies of the Jewish people killed during the wars on the 13th day of Adar. Achashverish appointing Mordechai as his prime minister. Malchus. La what do we need it for? This is not the way. We're happy it happened. And now let's move on. Interesting response to Esther. And Esther responded back and said, You got it wrong. In their books, the whole story is written. (laughs) They all know the story. Let at least the Jewish people know the story. They know the story. You're trying to hide from people you can't hide. They know everything. They're aware of everything. In your mind, they may not be aware, but they know everything. It's all written down. It's all transcribed in their chronicles. At least let the Jewish world understand the story. And then the Gemara continues. Esther asked them for something else. Don't only celebrate Purim as a holiday. I want you to write down the story and it will become part of the sacred, what we call canonized text of the Tanakh. And once again, they said, absolutely not. And their source, their source was a verse from Mishlei, Shilashim v'loyri beim, that the story of blotting out Amalek and Haman, a descendant of Amalek, is to be three times in the Tanakh, and the three are taken up: Parshas Beshalach, Parshas which is Parshas Zacher, we just read the Shabbos before Purim, and finally Shmuel Aleph Perik, Tesvav. Shmuel 1 Samuel 1 chapter 15 after of Parchazakh, the story of King Shool, Shoal HaMelech being commanded to go blot out Amalek, but he has compassion. He leaves the king alive, Agog alive. And as the Gemara says, Haman ha agogi, Haman is called an Agagite because he was a descendant of Agog, the king of Amalek, And the Medrash says it was that night when Shmuel allowed when Shol allowed Agog to live, that he had ultimately Um, um, he had ultimately uh, had relations which caused the seed of Haman to be born generations later. Three times, Beshalach, Kiseitse, and the Haftar. And then the Gemara says, the Sanhedrin inquired and researched and investigated, and they realized that Esther was right. From the Psukim and Parshas Beshalach, Ksoiv, Zoi, Zikoro, and Ksoiv, Zoi, Zikoro, and that ultimately the Megillah, the story of Purim, should be written. And written doesn't only mean written physically documented, but written means that the text becomes a sacred text. The writing itself. Is becomes holy and significant. We read the Megillah, and the Megillah has to be written on parchment, and you have to hear every word of the Megillah. It's not just a story of Purim. The written story assumes tremendous significance. The concrete writing on the wall or writing on the parchment is what Esther accomplished. Kosvuni lederis. Which would explain why the Megillah would be called Megillah's Esther, because it's not just a story about her, it's also about other people but really she is the one who is responsible for the Megillah, for the fact that we have the scroll of Esther and its sacred significance as a member of the Tanakh. But which only brings us to the next question. Why did Esther go out so much on a limb for this? To the point that she had to stand up to great, great people, great men who initially rejected both of her requests. They acquiesced. They realized that Esther was right. But why did Esther from all people feel so compelled to the point that she is the one who asked for the Megillah to happen. The fact that she asked for the Megillah to happen is because there's something about the Megillah that is uniquely connected to her. And that's why the name is Megillah Esther. Allow me to change the subject for a moment, but not completely. Everybody knows that the day before Purim, the 13th day of Adar, is a unique day and its name from time immemorial is Tainus Esther. Literally, the fast of Esther. Throughout the Jewish calendar, we have different fasts. We have Yom Kippur, the fast of Yom Kippur. We have the fast called Tishabov, which is the date, the ninth of Av. Shivassabatamas. We have a fast called Sayim Gedalia, day after Rosh Hashanah, it commemorates the assassination. Of a Jew named Gedaliah, the son of Achikam, who was appointed by the Babylonian monarch before the Purim story to be the head of the Jewish community in Judea, in Eretz Israel, after the destruction. And his assassination was really a terrible blow and a new current in Jewish history. We, of course, have the other fasts, Asarabatavis, 10th of Tavis. This fast, which this year, like always, is a day before Purim. This year, Wednesday tomorrow, is not called Yud Yudgimal Uder, consistent with the other fast, Chit Shab or Shloish Ba Udr, Shloish Sabah, the 13th of Other. It has a name. Tainus Esther, the fast of Esther. If every name is significant, as we mentioned before, Megillus Esther, let's think for a moment about the name Tainus Esther. Why is the fast given the name Tynas Esther? At first glance, most people who have read the Megillah will answer the question and it seems like a no-brainer. When Mardechai begged Esther to go into her husband, Achashverosh, and plead with him for the Jewish people, Esther finally acquiesced and said, I will go. I will enter into the king, not according to the regulations and the laws. But before that, Esther tells Mardachai, Go gather all the Jews. I want you to fast. Don't eat and don't drink. For three consecutive days, and I mean days of 24-hour periods, we shall also fast. Me and the young women who help me, my assistants, will also fast. On the third day, Esther dresses up in royalty, and she enters into the king, jeopardizing her very life, as she told Mardachai. If he doesn't stretch out the golden scepter, I come out of this audience with a head shorter. Achas Esther thus is the one who initiated the fast. She is the one who told Mordechai, go gather all of the Jews. kol All the Jews hanemtzayim b'shusha. All the Jews, that was spoke last week at length, leich knoiz hanemtzayim b'shusha, the whole v'napoichu, the transformation. So we understand, who is the one who conceived of the fast? It was Esther. Mordechai had to implement it. He was the leader on the ground. Esther was in the palace. But it was her idea. She conceived the idea. She instructed Mordechai to do it and he went and he did it. She also said, I am also going to fast. This would then explain why it's called Tainus Esther. It's really Esther's fast. It's her baby. It's her idea. She came up with it. We're fasting because of her. Yet, as many of the commentators explain, this is really a very problematic explanation. And I'll explain to you why. Who knows when tainis, this Tainus, this fast of Esther, when did it happen? <laughs> it happened on Pesach. It has nothing to do with the day before Pur- Let's remember the history. Haman chose through a lot the 13th day, the 13th day of Adar, as the designated day for genocide. The day in which every Jew in the Persian Empire, which means every Jew, would be Khalila exterminated, Lahashmid Vilarigas, Kola Yehudim in Zakin Children, older people, men, women, every age, every stripe, every Jew conceivable on the face of the planet, which who was under the provinces. Under the governance of Akashverish at the time, because of the massive Persian Empire. You had no Jews yet in the United States of America. You had no, it's before Christopher Columbus. You had no Jews yet in Australia. You had no Jews yet in New Zealand. You had no Jews in Japan or China. The Jews were concentrated in the provinces, the 127 provinces under Akashverish's rule, one day designated to murder each and every one of them. This is the 13th day of Adar designated. When was the decree signed? When did the king sign this edict? And the answer is, the Megillah says, on the 13th day of Nisan, which means 11 months earlier. So on the 13th day of Nisan, an edict came out from the king that in 11 months, exactly 11 months, round exactly 11 months, 13th of Nisan to the 13th of Adar, you with me? The Jews should be exterminated on that day. Mordechai hears about the decree, and what happens? He rents his garments, he sends a message to the queen, to Esther. <speaking in Hebrew> Esther was overwhelmed from trepidation when she hears this. She sends back the message, I can't go in without permission, I'll be killed. Mordechai responds and says, this is your responsibility, this is your responsibility. Perhaps this is the reason you became the queen. Mi idea. Esther sends back a message. Okay, go gather all the Jews and fast for three days. I will also fast. On the third day she goes into the king. When were these fast days? If the decree came out on the 13th of Nisan, so the fast days were the next three nights and days. So it was the 14th of Nisan, the 15th of Nisan, and the 16th of Nisan. Erev Pesach, the first day of Pesach, and the second day of Pesach. Some of the sages argue that the fast actually happened right away that day. Which means the fast was Yud Gimel Nisan, Yud Dalad and Tesvav nisen, Two days before Pesach and the first day of Pesach. To the point that Mordechai sent back a message. The Gemara says, how could we fast on Pesach? you know what a to fast on Pesach. On Pesach there's a mitzvah to eat matzah. On Pesach, Pesach is a Yomtif. We make kiddush we eat matzah, we have meals. There's a Seder of Pesach. Even though it was an exile, they couldn't bring a carbon Pesach. But there's still a biblical mitzvah to eat matzah on Pesach. The rabbinic mitzvah to drink four cups of wine, to eat when you're reclined, to eat marr, etc., etc. How can you suggest this? And Esther responds to Pesach? without Jews, what are you going to do with your Pesach? There's no Pesach If you're not going to have Jews in the world, there's no Pesach. Who's going to celebrate Pesach? Now we have to focus on saving the Jews. And that's why the Megillah continues, Vayyavor Mordechai. Which literally means Mordechai transgressed. Asks the Gemara, where did Mordechai transgress? He instituted a fast on Pesach. For all of the Jewish people, including for himself. And this was the idea of Esther. So when was this fast? This fast was not on the 13th of Adar. This fast was... On Pesach, Yudgimelness and Yudaladness and Taz-vav-ness and or Yudaladness and Tasvovness and Tazayinness. Which, by the way, the third day of the fast, Esther goes into her king, to the king. He, of course, accepts her with grace. He says, what do you want, Esther? I'll do anything for you. Ad Malchus. And she invites him to a party. Which is why it's brought in Halacha, in Pesach, that on the second day of Pesach, It's a very interesting halacha. You should add something extra to the meal. Why? Zecher, commemoration, to the meal that Esther threw, the party that Esther threw for Achashverish and Haman. Because if the fast happened, Yud Gimel, Yud Dalet, Tesvav. So Tesvav was the third day. She went in on the first day of Pesach. She invited Achashverish to a meal that evening. And of course, there was a lot of drinking of wine. And Esther, of course, made sure there should be a lot of wine. She wanted to drink four cups of wine. By the say, how are you supposed to drink four cups of wine in the palace of Achashvedish? So she made sure there's a lot of wine. So Achashvedish could drink, and Haman should drink, and she could also drink her four cups of wine. Ah, huh? Yeah, yeah, she brought Rabbi Landau and the Badats to supervise the party. It was at night. It was after the fast. She broke She broke her fast. She broke her fast. The second night of Pesach, Yom Sheni Shel Goliath, in Persia. doesn't say at the party there was chametz. A cheshverish can eat chametz on Pesach. Haman can eat chametz on Pesach. It's not a problem. Shel They can have other chametz. But at any anyway, rate, who says there was chametz? It was all gluten-free. What do you think? And, and then during the meal, Achashvayr says, what do you want now? She says, I want a second party. When is the second party? What we call the second day, Sorry, the second day of Pesach, Tezayan, That's the second party. So either Tazayin was the first party, if the fast was Yudalat Tazvav, Tazayin, that was the first party, or the second party. So that's why it says in Allah, that on the second day of Pesach, you make a commemoration for the Mishta She'asas Esther. We do something special at the second meal in order to commemorate that. But this opinion or that opinion, it's obvious that the three days of fasting were not Yud Gimel Adr, the 13th of Adr. So the Tainus Esther that we are celebrating is not that fast. We're fasting before Purim. That fast happened a year before the events of Purim in the month of Nisan. Besides the fact that we fast one day, and that fast was three days, so you can explain Well, we don't want to fast three days, it's difficult. One day is also difficult for people, but three days and three nights... Uh, I don't have to elaborate on what that means. It was like a unique moment in Jewish history. So we can't do it for three days and three nights. It would be something that the Chazal would not institute. But besides the fact that it's a change from three to one, even if you want to rationalize that, it's a completely different date in the calendar. If they want to make a Zecher for the fast of Esther, they're probably not going to commemorate it in the month of Nisan and on Pesach, because we don't have a right to cancel out a Seder to commemorate a fast but you can make it at another date. And generally the Gemara says, when you want to make a fast and you can't make it on that day, you always delay it. You don't make it earlier, you delay it. You can do it some time in the month of year, after the month of Nisan. So Tainus Esther can't mean that fast. It's a completely different fast. That fast, I understand why it's called Esther's fast. But our fast, the day before Purim, has nothing to do with Esther. Why is it called Tainus Esther? It's even interesting, the Masechah Saifram says that some people used to have a commemoration for Esther's fast, and after Purim, they fast on a Thursday, on a Monday, and on a Thursday to commemorate the three days of Esther's fast. So there was actually a special commemoration for that fast that was done after Purim, which also requires explanation why it's done before and not later, usually we say fasts. Usually fast, let's say Tisha is on Shabbos, you don't fast before, you fast after. And the reason is, the Gemara says that Purani is negative things, you don't make them earlier, you delay them later. With Tainis Esther, you sometimes do it earlier. If Purim is Sunday, you can't fast on Shabbos, because you can't push it off a day later, because it's going to be Purim. So you do it earlier. But here, according to the Masech Seifrim, when they commemorate the three-day fast, they don't do it after Nisan, they do it before Nisan. They do it in Adar, but they do it after Purim. And that's why the Avud Raham, Rabbeinu David, Avud Raham, and many other, other of the great halachic authorities explain that Titus Esther is a completely different type of fast. It has nothing to do with the three-day fast that Esther instituted because that wasn't connected to the 13th of Adar. It has to do with something else completely. Remember, when Haman was killed, the edict was not over. Haman's death was a nice event in the sense that a Haman was killed, such an arch enemy of the Jewish people, it was a cause for celebration, but not for ultimate celebration. To give a simple and tragic example, if in the middle of the Holocaust, an Eichmann would have been shot, or a Himmler would have been shot, or a Mengele would have been shot, or a Goebbels would have been shot, Yemach Shemam. It wouldn't have altered the Holocaust. One of its key architects or implementers would have been eliminated. The edict was out. Haman's edict was out. On the 13th of Adar, every Jew should be exterminated. This was an edict of the king. Every man, woman, and child. Haman is gone, but the decree was there. Which is why in chapter 8 of the Megillah, Esther, Esther comes back she pleads before the king, she falls by his feet, and she begs him to cancel and obliterate the scheme of homonagogi. Why? Esther knew Haman is dead. But the decree is still there. And what's the response of the king? He says, I can't change the decree. It's already signed, and I cannot cancel a decree that was issued forth by the king. What does he agree on? You know what he agreed on? He agreed on that the Jews could stand up in self defense. People don't realize. They think that with Purim it was all over. It wasn't over. When Haman was hung for the next year, Jews had to prepare for war. Because on the 13th day of Adar, there was a royal edict to go kill Jews. What Achashveirish gave in, what he gave in to Esther is he allowed the Jews to stand up against their enemies. You could kill back. You could defend yourself and kill back, which is what the Jews did on the 13th of Adar. So 11 months later, when the 13th of Adar came, it wasn't an easy day. It was a very serious day. Because all the Amalekites and all the Jew haters rose to kill. This was their prerogative from the king. The difference was, over the year, with Mardachai as a prime minister, and Esther as a queen, and Achashverish turned favorably to the Jewish people. So many people backed out. There was a general awe and respect for the Jewish people. The regime, the government, was not insisting anymore the Amalekites and the Jew haters with the murder, but the Jews still had to defend themselves. Says Davudraham Raham something very interesting based on our Sheiltois, which is, we have a halacha, in When Jews went to war, a day when Jews went to war, they used to be geyser tainus. They used to make a fast on that day because a tainus is an eisratzai. It's a day that's special, suitable for prayer and powerful blessings and achievements. And therefore, when they went to war and they needed extra success, hatzlacha and bracha, success and blessings in their endeavor they used to always issue forth a tainus. They would make a fast, to fast on that very day, to pray and fast that the war should, the vict- victory should come, they should triumph over their enemies. Since the 13th of Adr was a day of war, of battle, the Jews, as the pasuk says, the v'amayd al-nafsham, they gathered together to stand up for their soul, so it became a day of a fast. As the Gemara says, Yud Zman Kehila It was a time of gathering. What type of gathering? One of the interpretations is gathering for war. They had to prepare for battle. And another interpretation is they gathered also. Kehila. It was a time of gathering. It was a time of special prayer, special benedictions, and as David Raham quotes from the Shilts and the it would have been a Yom Tiness, a day of fasting. Oh. If that's the case, we understand why the 13th of Adar is a day of fasting. Because the day before Purim was a day when they fasted. Just like we commemorate the celebration, we also commemorate the serious moments. Before the celebration, the time of fasting, as Yud-Gimel Adder, was a day of war. And as the Megillah describes, on the 13th of Adar they fought back, the enemies who came to kill them, and they triumphed. And on the 14th of Adar. They could rest because now the day was over. There was no permission to kill anymore. Now, anybody who would try to kill a Jew would be penalized by death, perhaps. And therefore, Yudhalid, they can go home and relax and celebrate, which is why Purim is on Yudhalid and the fast is on Yudgimel. On the 13th, they fasted the day of the war, and the day after the war, they relaxed. In Shushan, where the war continued for two days because there were so many Amalekites there, Esther felt that the Jews will not be safe because so many murderers remained intact and they will find every reason and excuse to kill Jews. The king extended the right for self-defense another day, and they only rested when? On the 15th day. They only rested on the 15th day, therefore they celebrate Purim on the day 15. Shushan Purim. This is the reason that Raham and many of the commentators give for the fast of Esther, why do we fast on the 13th day of Adi? Because it was a day when the Jewish people fasted because it was a day of battle, it was a day of danger, it was a day of self-defense. Which brings us back to the question: so why is it called Tina's Esther? What does it have to do with Esther? What does it have to do with Esther? It has to do if, it's the first interpretation which we refuted. I understand why it's Esther, because she initiated the plan. But we explained that it has nothing to do with that. That happened by Pesach. This is a fast the day before Purim. That's why it's today. You'd give him a letter. Why is it called Tainus Esther, the fast of Esther? So some superficially would say, well, why not? Megillus Esther, Tainus Esther, you know. and Neifel, Alashen. But it doesn't work that way, because Megillus Esther, Tainus Esther are two separate creatures. A Megillah, Esther, has to do taka with Esther because she's the one who initiated the project of the Megillah, as we explained before, the Gemara says of Megillah. Tainous Esther has absolutely nothing to do with her. Nothing. The Jews had to gather together in battle. It was a day of prayer. It was a day of benediction. It was a Titus. And because it was a Tainous, it's a day that you fast and you dive into Hashem and you ask, Aneinu Hashem Aneinu, every single Jew. And yet, till today, the essential, the day, the name of the day is Tinas Esther, the fast of Esther to fight. But the fast has nothing to do with her. She got the permission to fight, one hundred percent. I'm going to share with you an insight, an answer that was given by the Lubavitcher Rebbe to this question. He said at Purim at a gathering of Purim, and he said that a few days. I struggled with this question a few days. And he said, Purim is my anger fallen at Heretz. On Purim, an answer came into my mind. And this was the answer that the Labavitcher Rebbe gave. The same toisefte in Masechus Tainus, and it's brought in Shulchanoruch, Erechaim, in the laws of fasts, tofkof, simon, Tovkuf ayin, aleph, I think, which tells us that on a day of fasting, you have to make a fast, on a day of war, you make a fast day to increase prayers and benedictions because it's an ace and a fast day has a very special power. The same Tosefta says, who is supposed to fast? Not the people who go to war. Because the people who go to war need to be as strong as possible. To quote the words of the Chazal, they're not allowed to fast because they cannot allow sh- If they fast, it may cause it may uh, weaken their energy and their stamina and their vigor and therefore they're not allowed to fast. They have to eat, they have to drink, they have to be as healthy as possible. Soldiers in war need to be fed well according to their capacity because they have to have all the strength they need according to Teva to win. So who is supposed to fast in a day of war? Those who stay behind the front lines whether it's older people, younger people, people who can't go to war, women who, are not, who do not go to war, or, or men who wouldn't go to war for whatever reason, they would stay behind and fast. What about the soldiers themselves, those who went to battle? So the halacha tells us in Taysef the tiny Koron, and Shulchan Aruch, what they're supposed to do is make a resolution that when they come back from war, they're going to fast. And since when a person makes a resolution, Machshavah Tovah, When a person makes a positive revolution, it's considered as though you did it already, even though you didn't do it yet. So the fact that they commit themselves to fast is considered as though they fasted, but they can't physically actually implement it. When they come back from war, then they could fast. So everybody else who doesn't go to war, they fast and they daven. But those who go to war, they obviously can't go to shul. Sadly, they have to go to war, and they're not allowed to fast. They have to eat and drink And those who stay behind will fast, and those who go to war commit themselves to fast at a time when they can, when the war is over. Hopefully they'll triumph and be victorious. And that thought and resolution that I'm going to fast suffices as though they fasted already. Now, said the Rebbe, let's think about it. If this is the truth of every war, those who go to war can't fast. Those who stay behind can fast. It's based on the principle that there are those who go to war and there are those who stay behind. But in this particular war on the 13th day of Adar, we were the front lines. We were the front lines of the battle that Haman initiated for the 13th day of Adar. We were the front lines. Who was targeted in this war? La hashmid la abed a one-day-old baby in a crib was targeted. A two-year-old girl in her room was targeted. A hundred-year-old, a hundred-year-old Jew, frail, weak in bed, was targeted. Every man, every woman, and child. We were the front lines, bedrooms, kitchens, dining rooms, basements, couches, beds, outside, inside, indoors, outdoors, wherever there was a Jew of any age. He or she became the target. So now there's a question. On a day of war, you're supposed to fast. But was anybody allowed to fast on that day? Was there even one Jew who was allowed to fast? If every woman in the kitchen knows, she has to pick up an axe. She has to pick up an hammer. She has to pick up a knife. She has to fight for herself and her... For little ones, every kid, six-year-old is a target, every 12-year-old is a target, every 15-year-old is a everybody's a target, every 80-year-old, 90-year-old is a target. Is anybody a lot of fast? The answer is no. You have to eat, you have to drink, you have to be as strong as you need because you're a target, which means that the fast of Yudgimel Adr essentially was only theoretical, when we say it's a fast day, it's only that they committed themselves to fast, because in reality, nobody is allowed to fast. Usually when there's a war, there's a battlefield, front lines, and there's back lines. You mobilize the soldiers, or you mobilize the reservists, and they go to war. But others stay behind. They stay behind, and they can organize life as much as possible. They can assist the war in other ways. But here, there were no front lines, and other lines. There was no demarcation Every bedroom was a front line. Which means not one Jew could practically actually fast on Yud Gimel Everyone could only make a commitment that Be'ezer Hashem, when we win, we will then fast besides one Jew. (laughs) There was only one Jew who was allowed to fast on that day. Who? (laughs) Esther. The only one. She was the only Jew in the entire empire of Ahasuerus who can fast. Why? Because she was the only one who was not a target. Nobody would come into the palace and murder the queen of Ahasuerus who he was so enamored by. And the one who he told a year before, 11 months before, I'll do anything for you. And for her, he hung Haman and hung the 10 sons of Haman and gave the Jews a right to self-defense. Nobody would touch her. So on the 13th day of other who fasted? <laughs> one person. So it's called Tainus Esther. So now you understand why it's called the fast of Esther. She's the only one of Clay Yisrael who fasted. Nobody else was allowed to. Everybody else, when they finished the war, they celebrated Purim, they took another day, then they fasted. And that's why it makes sense that Mesech HaSoyfim says that they established three fast days after Purim to commemorate the fast of Pesach. Because many Jews actually had to fast after Purim. Their tiny Esther was after Purim. Not many, all. So the Masech, the Seif, said they put together the two fasts, that fast, and the three days of Esther, and they have it after Purim, Thursday, Monday, Thursday. But the fast that we commemorate on the 13th day of Adar, we're commemorating the fast of Esther. She's the only one who fasted. Everybody else fasted in theory, fasted in mind, fasted in resolution. So the name Tynas is actually the most appropriate name for the day. It captures the day more than any other day. Because it was really the fast of Esther. not just she planned it, she thought of it, she conceived it, she told Mordechai to do it, she said, I'll also fast. That means she was behind it. Here it's much more. This fast, she wasn't only behind, she was the only one who did it. She could be the only one to implement it, nobody else. Everybody else was a legitimate target. Remembering again that the edict was never canceled. Every Jew was a target. They were just given a right for self-defense. And when anybody is in a position of self-defense, you have to be strong. You couldn't tell a boy, Yabba mitzvah bach, don't worry, you fast. You're not allowed to fast. You're a woman, you're taking care of the babies. Fast. I can't fast. I can't fast. I have to protect me and my babies. Everyone has to be protected. Besides Esther, alone in the palace, she fasts. Avart, huh? avart. The children fasted on the three-day fast. That's where the children fasted. Now we're talking the fast 11 months later, on the day that they had to defend themselves. You're not allowed to fast. Anything that could compromise your full stamina and vigor... You're not allowed to engage in because pikuach nefesh trumps everything. So therefore to say don't drink a cup of water, you have to drink a cup of water. You have to drink a cup of water. It's very hard to battle when a person is starving and thir- especially thirsty and dehydrated, etc. They have to drink. Even if they don't have to eat a lot. But they have to drink. Because if it, it can even minimize their strength a little bit, they're not allowed to. But Esther didn't have anything to worry. She, nobody was attacking her. So she and her palace could fast alone, which now brings us to the next next level, to the next step, I mean, the next phase. It is in this very insight that we could begin to appreciate the distinction between Mardachai, all of the other Jewish people, and Esther. And I think the best way to describe it is somebody once asked me a question. And it made me think. This person told me, it was a woman, said to me, I have a hard time celebrating Purim. I thought she would tell me because of the Shalachmanas nightmare. <laughs> the pressure and stress that people put on themselves with the types of shalakhmanas. I said, Why? You know, Shalachmanas you can give to one friend, you can give an orange and a hamantash. <laughs> You don't have to stress yourself out. You want to give to a few friends, give aldik. She said, No, that's not why I have a problem with Purim. I said, What's your problem with Purim? She said, I always, every year on Purim, I cry for Esther. I said, Why do you cry for Esther? She says, The war is over. Everybody goes home. <speaking> Where does Esther go? She's stuck with a Hashmeirish. Everybody is drinking and partying. My life, my gate, and she's stuck with a Hashemanej, a shikirigoi from Persia. An inebriated monarch. He said, What a tragedy. What a sad story. I cry faster every year. It was an interesting observation. But her question is also her answer. The question gives us insight into Esther. And this is the key difference between Mardachai and all the Jews versus Esther. Indeed, Mardachai was Esther's parent in many ways. Mentor, guide, relative. He took her in after she was orphaned from her father and mother. According to some opinions in Chazal, they even got married. Vahila Labas, Altikra Labas, Ella Not only a daughter, initially, but also ultimately a life's partner. Which is why when Esther had to go into the king without permission, she says to Marduchai, V'chasher avadati, avadati, and we read it with the tune of Eicha. V'chasher avadati, avadati. Why is this such a sad moment in the Megillah? What does Esther mean? Sarashi explains Rashi something very, 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 very sensitive. And Rashi says, until this point, every time Esther was together with a chashveirish, it was against her will. She had no choice. Esther She was taken to the king. This would be the first time she would initiate a relationship. The first time. Every other time, she remained passive. She did what she did, and her life was saved. But she remained passive. This is the first time, as Rashi says, It's the first time she is initiating a relationship. Which would of course mean that she could not go back to Mardechai afterwards. Because since, it wouldn't be by coercion. It would be willingly and voluntarily. She wouldn't be able to go back to Mardechai. It would also mean that she's not only forfeiting physical sacrifices. She's forfeiting a spiritual spiritual gift. She's forfeiting as you would say not only something in this world, but something very precious to her soul, the khashirah avadati of Esther is the one who goes into the palace, who stays in the palace, who lives in the palace and who influences a from within the palace. This is a completely different experience than Mardechai. And now we have to ask ourselves this question. If there was a Jewish woman, a graduate from Suresh Schneer's Beis Yaakov, in 19, she founded Beis Yaakov in 1917 or 1918 in Krakow, and within a few years the movement blossomed. It was quite a historic phenomenon to have schools for girls in the turn of the 20th century. And a valedictorian graduate of a Beis in Krakow or in Lodz in 1938, in 1938, would be summoned to the Berghof, to the residence of uh, Adolf Hitler Yamach Shemay in Bavaria. And she would know, she would know that as a result of her work, her impact her influence, her intervening, the Holocaust would not take place. The war September 1, 1939, Yudzayin el elo tafresh Tzadik would be avoided. And the six million Jews sent to their gas chambers, including one and a half million children, all of their lives would have been rescued. You see, when we look at history, we never ask the question, what if things would have turned out differently? All of history is a focus of what happened, not what might have happened. But, a wise person sees the future, doesn't only see what happened, but also sees what might happen, and what I could do to avoid it. And then when they avoid it, Nobody knows the story anymore. There's nothing to write home about. Nothing happened. But that's the real story. That's the real story. Esther left her people, left her nation, remained in the palace. But till her last breath, Esther knew that because of her, every single Jew of her generation was rescued and the Jewish people will remain an eternal people. Is this a tragic story, or is it a joyous story? On one level, there is sadness in the story. Esther herself doesn't understand how she ended up in this place. Where do I come here? The Medrash says, very famous Medrash in Tehillim, Capital uh, Chav Beis, twenty-two in Tehillim, Lam Al Ayelas Hashachar Mizmer LeDavid Kayli Kayli Lama Azaftani. And our sages say, who said this poem of Tehillim? Esther HaMalka. My God, my God, why did you abandon me? And the way the Midrash puts it, the way the Midrash puts it is, when Esther was taken to Achashverj the first time, and she entered a palace full of pagan deities called Beis This so Says before Christianity, but a, excuse me, excuse me, I apologize, a house full of deities, The Shekhinah left Esther. The Divine Presence left Esther because she was in this place. What does she say? "Kayli, kayli, Loma azavtani." My God, my God, why did you abandon me? Atadon shoigig k'mezid v'oynes keratzain. Something that was forced upon me. You're looking at it as though I did this willingly, as though I embraced this life for myself. And the Medrash continues. The first day she said Kaylee. The second day she said Kaylee. The third day she screamed out on the top of her lungs Kaylee Kaylee Loma Azavtoni. And the Medrash says Kaylee on the Red Sea. Kaylee on Mount Sinai. And now you abandon me. Esther felt it's a new era in Jewish history. The Gemara says Esther soivs anavua. Esther represents the end of prophecy. It's dawn. Before dawn is the strongest of darkness. The era of prophecy comes to an end in the time of Esther. The word Esther means concealment. I will conceal my face that day. And the Medrash continues. My God, my God, why did you abandon me? Why has the world collapsed on me? It's not the way the world is supposed to go. This is not what I planned as a teenager. I was supposed to graduate school, move on, build a future in the Jewish world, build a home, build a family, build an identity. This was not part of my resume. I never asked for this. I didn't sign up for this life. <speaking in Hebrew> and then she adds, lai <speaking> sidron <Hebrew> The Jewish matriarchs didn't have to deal with what I have to deal with. Why? Sarah was also abducted by Parai. And Parai held her in his palace for one night. And he and his entire family were struck with leprosies and infections and diseases. They didn't know what hit them. And Parai let Sarah go. She says, and I have been for years in the bosom of this Rosha Marusha. No miracles for me. The entire system of the matriarchs is gone. Kayli, kayli, Lama aftani. Why did you abandon me? And the medrash continues. She says the word kayli three times. Kayli, kayli, Lama aftani. Mi beten imi. Keli from the womb you have been my God. And now you have abandoned me. Amra Esther. Shalosh mitzvah is his heart to Leisha. My God, my God, my God. My God has given me three mitzvahs. Three opportunities for a powerful relationship. Number one, as the Medrash puts it, Nida, Chala, and Hadlokas. Hadlokas Haner. The acronym of Chana. Chala which represents the whole system of kashras in the house, which is the lighting of the candles before Shabbos, which represents the whole ambiance and atmosphere of Shabbos and the ability to create light in the house, and the third mitzvah, the nun, which is nidah, which represents the entire foundation of a family and a marriage and family purity and intimacy and relationships permeated with an ambiance of closeness and sacredness and holiness, have I transgressed even one? My God, my God, my God, I have been loyal in all three. Why did you abandon me? This struggle only Esther went through. Nobody else went through. Mordechai was a great and holy man. He gave the instructions, but he didn't end up where Esther ended up. Mordechai could never look and say, Keli, Keli, Lama, azavtani." Mardechai remained in a cocoon of holiness. Mardechai remained in a cocoon of spirituality. Mardechai remained with his brothers and sisters. He had to struggle. He had to stand up. He rent his garments. He cries. He weeps. He issues forth a fast. He gathers all the Jewish people. The Medrash describes how he gathered 22,000 children and learned with them. It's incredible. But who experienced the Hester? Who experienced the aster aster ponai, the real concealment of life? Who went into the lion's den? Who went into a palace of a who himself was, uh, to put it mildly, an inebriated, intoxicated, spineless, immoral, promiscuous party animal? Who went into that place and had to play the game and had to fulfill her role? And when when push came to shove at a moment of crisis, True, Mardachai is the one who said, go. And she said, how can I go? I'm going to die. And Mardachai said, this is why you're there. But once that happened, who is the one who went? (laughs) Who is the one who jeopardized his life? Not Mardachai. It was Esther who went, and it was Esther who at that point takes the initiative, and she tells Mardachai, go gather the Jews, fast for three days, and I will go into the king. At this point, Mardachai's influence comes to a halt, and now Esther tells Mardachai what to do. And she goes into the king and she makes one party and she makes another party. Nobody gave her these ideas. This was Esther's own creativity of going into that place and ultimately emerging with a victory for her people. That's why the Megillah has the name of Esther. Because her role here is of a completely different caliber and of a completely different nature than anybody else, even people like Mardachai of such great power and such important influence even on Esther's life. The fact that Esther is the only one who could fast on Yudh Gimel is because she's only the only one who was actually in the palace. She is the one who's there. So now when you think about this, on one level, it's Haster. It's such a concealment. It interrupted her whole life flow. She turns to God and said, What did I do? Am I such a bad girl? Am I such an evil person that I ask for this? Tell me what I did to be for years. And let's remember, the Purim miracle didn't happen a day after Esther became a queen. She became a queen on the seventh year of his kingship. The story of Purim happens approximately five or six years later. What did those five, six years look like? People think, Esther went into the palace, the next day there was a party, no, 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 we read it in 25 minutes, I'm a <laughs> From Ba'i we go through 12, 13 years, and if it's a fast Balkyria, 11 minutes. I'll give, me, give me 22 minutes, and I'll give you the Persian Empire. Okay, I don't know what type of Balkyrias you have. I know some Balkyrias, they do it in 7, 8 minutes, I don't know how you're supposed to hear the Megillah, but try it. It didn't happen in 7-8 minutes. It didn't even happen in 35 minutes. It happened over more than a decade. A decade and a half. For many years that's why she says sorrow was one night by Parai. And the whole universe changed. And I'm there in his bosom for years. There was no climax. And Esther didn't know what's coming. Nobody knew what's coming. And one would think, one would think in such a moment, in such a position, Esther would do one of two things. Either she would at some point surrender, surrender her old identity just to be able to integrate and have somewhat of a normal life, or Esther would become amazingly stubborn, defiant, bitter, miserable, stone-like. The uniqueness of Esther is that Esther understood that she may not understand how she may not understand why, but that she's no victim. She was sent into a place where very few people were sent. Sara did not experience such concealment. That's true. Sara comes from the word sar. Sar means, Sarah, a princess, a leader. The word sar comes from the word shrara. Shrara means leadership, rulership. Sarah, comes from the word Sarah, like Yaakov Yisrael, Esther is the word concealment. Who has a baby and names them concealment? We all take for granted the name Esther. It's a beautiful name because we have Esther, right? And I know what a beautiful name Esther is for personal reasons as well. However, think about the first author of the name. What would your therapist say? What's your girl's name? Concealment. Or better, dark secrets. Wow, that's a great boost for (laughs) self-confidence. Cover-ups, better. What's your name? Cover-ups. Isn't that great psychologically? And yet we continue to name our daughters Esther. Concealment. And the Gemara says this. What's the source of Esther in Torah? (inaudible) Haster, Esther, ponai bayoyimahu. My face is concealed. Because that is the whole beauty and the power of Esther. Esther goes into a place where you pick up your hands and you say kayli kayli lama azaftani why did you abandon me i feel abandoned the course of my life the trajectory the tra- trajectory of my life is completely off balance this was not part of it i'm a broad person but this was not part this was not part of it right as Tevye says God, I know we're the chosen people, but can't you choose somebody else once in a while? (laughs) Or, Or as Elie Wiesel used to say, chosen, but not always for benefits. So Esther says, maybe for somebody else. This is a great privilege, with all the explanations in the Midrash. And yet, what Esther knows at this moment is she's talking to God. She calls him my God. My God, my God, why did you abandon me? I may not understand how. I may not understand why. But Esther never ever becomes a victim to her circumstances. Esther understands that she was sent into a place of Hester. She was sent into a place of concealment. There is a mission here. There is a divine mission here, a divine opportunity. And therefore every moment she remains open. And when she's convinced by Mardachai that this is the moment, Esther says, And the words of Mardachai are, Who knows? As we spoke in a previous year, Mardachai should have not said, Who knows? When you say, Who knows? It sounds like you're ambivalent. Who knows? Maybe yes, maybe not. I'm going to tell you, jump into the fire. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. Why mi idea? What Mordechai was telling Esther is: there comes a point in life where you have to open yourself up to that which is beyond das. If you go with your rational calculations, this whole thing doesn't make sense. I can't explain why a lovely graduate of one of our best girls' schools in Muncie or in uh, Shushan ended up in this place. I don't know mi idea. It's beyond das. Which is why we celebrate Purim through ad. The loyada, beyond us. We spoke about the Das, you go beyond das. Esther with das, with, with regular rationality, what is this? You abandoned me. Esther understands that here the relationship is a completely different type of relationship. It's a relationship where if you look at it from a surface point of view, you feel neglected, abandoned. But she has to dig much, much deeper and realize that the relationship must be elevated to a place that is etched in the core of her soul, in a place that's even beyond your rational consciousness. And she remains open to that. And as she remains open to that, she says, It's not according to the structure. Mardechai said, And it triggers within her the ability to go beyond her das. And she knows God is there, even if it's completely behester. I can't see it, I can't touch it, I can't feel it, I can't smell it. And from all calculations and perspectives, this whole thing doesn't make sense. And in that pace, she's now acting as a classical Persian queen. We're making a party. With Haman, with a And the Gemara says it was so bad that the Jews looked at Esther as the ultimate traitor. Who does she invite to a party? Imagine an influential woman in 1943 has a feast and who does she invite? She invites her husband, naturally. And who's the guest of honor to celebrate at the party? She invites a Hitler. That was Haman. That was Haman. Yimach Maybe it's the same thing. The Gemara says, the Jews looked at Esther, in Yiddish there's an expression, afareter, you know what afareter is? So the the Yiddish, uh, afareter, a traitor, a boged in Hebrew, boged, of the worst degree. Mele, you're in the palace, he's now your guest. Esther has to endure a concealment on many levels. Nobody understands what she's doing. This is her brilliant strategy. She completely goes into the role. She doesn't run away. But in that place of absolute concealment, of absolute spiritual paralysis, a place that looks like the epitome of spiritual death, Esther is holding on to a secret, knowing that she is on a mission, even if she can't understand how and why. And this she could share with nobody. Mordecai could wink But he stays on the outside. He never goes in. Esther goes into the Hester. She's the one who goes in there. And when she emerges from it, what happens? All of the Jewish people are saved. Until the end of generations, everybody looks at Esther and knows. She sacrificed everything. Her life turned out completely different than she imagined as a youngster. And this is after the trauma of not having a father, not having a mother. She's been through enough before this story. It was almost like trauma after trauma after trauma. And yet, in that place, in Esther, she reveals that I am present in the Hester. You're never ever a victim to any darkness. You were sent into the darkest places to be able to bring a unique light to the world. And when Esther breathed her last breath and she looked at her life, what could she tell herself? She could tell herself that because of her, every single Jew in the Persian Empire has survived. Not only for that generation, but today, 2,600 years later, we could sit here in a tent in 2019, Erev, Tainus, Esther, Toph, Tess, because of the one woman. So I told this woman, you remember I'm in the middle of a conversation with a woman who's having a hard time celebrate Purim. I gave her the briefer version. <laughs> I told her, I understand what you're saying. And I can't really answer your question, but I just want to give you another perspective. And I asked her, how would have you felt if you, your whole course of your life was transformed, but you knew that from 1939 to 1945 not one Jew would have been murdered because of you and because of you doing crazy stuff and strange stuff, not according to the course of the life that you designated for yourself, would you look at yourself in the mirror and say, I'm a tragedy, I'm a victim of tragedy, or you would look at yourself and be thankful? I said, you don't have to answer me the question. And this doesn't mean that Esther didn't have a pocket of sadness over certain opportunities that other people had that she did not have. That may be. It may be true. But at the end of the day, when Esther looks at herself, what does she see? She sees a person, literally, who saved the entire Jewish world in a story that we would have never known what it looked like because Esther avoided it. So when Purim is over, Esther comes to the Chachamen and she says, "Kavuni l'dayris. I want you to establish this day as a holiday. They say, nah, anti-Semitism. Esther says, don't talk to me about anti-Semitism. I have been there. They know everything about the Jews. Let the Jews know about the Jews. The only one who thinks that Jews are normal are Jews. The only state that thinks it's a regular state is Israel. Nobody else thinks that Israel is a regular country. Everybody knows Israel is different. The Jewish people are different. The Jews redden in that with cosmetic surgery, psychologically will be able to out-Gentile the Gentiles. So, like Dr. Tversky tells the famous story, or they say from him that he was once on an airplane, and he was wearing his Hasidic garb, round black hat, square white beard, long frock, long black coat, and a woman turns to him in Yiddish and says, You are the cause for anti-Semitism. If you would only dress normally and be normal and behave normal and speak normal and integrate and assimilate, there would be no anti-Semitism anymore. And Dr. Tversky, in a perfect Oxford English, asks the Yiddish-speaking woman, what language are you communicating in? I fail to comprehend the verbiage of your dialect." What language are you conversing in? She says, Yiddish. He says, oh, that's so sweet, but I don't really understand you because I am Amish. And she looks at him and she says, wow, I love the Amish. And he says, why? And she says, because you're a minority, but you maintain your heritage with such dignity and pride. I really respect you. Kudos to the Amish. And now it's his turn to respond in Yiddish. <laughs> and he says, "Aha, I given Amish michlib? Yes tazich bin. Ayid. Mit mir. If I would have been Amish, you'd love me. Now that I'm Jewish, I'm one of your own, you're embarrassed by me. I bless you to be able to appreciate in your own people, that which you can appreciate in other people. So Esther is here saying a message that reverberates to this very day. Jews are always blaming anti-Semitism. If we would only be different, be normal, have longer noses, shorter noses, more money, less money, more assimilated, more integrated, more compromises, they would love us. Esther says, you're reading the map wrong. You don't know what's going on. Let Jews understand what happened. But that's not enough for Esther. Esther wants, the Megillah should be written. At first glance, you could say, why does Esther need it so much? Why does Esther need it so much? At the surface, when you say, Esther wants to be famous, she wants that for the rest of our lives we should all read about Esther, Esther, Esther. Esther's life was a very different life. The reason Esther wanted it written down is because Esther wanted to teach the Jewish people, two major lessons, many major lessons, but two of the major lessons is this. Number one, she wanted to teach every Jewish woman and every Jewish girl for the remainder of history that they should understand that they have the ability to change the world. And they have the ability to impact their entire people. And they have the ability to transform situations from darkness into light. Sometimes a person looks at themselves and underestimates who they are. Esther wants, Kosvuni write a document that people, a woman and a girl, should understand what type of light she can have on the world, what type of impact she can have in the world, and what type of influence and transformation peichu, she can create to the point that she could save single-handedly the entire Jewish people. That's why Esther wanted to be written down. She wanted a Jewish woman to understand what lay What potential, what creativity, what atomic, spiritual, nuclear power and energy lay in her neshama, lay in her soul. But Esther wanted her to understand us, her and us, to understand one more thing. And that is that sometimes when a person looks at life and all they can see is haster, astir, Cover-ups, concealments, confusion, uncertainty. And sometimes a person is thrown into a place they didn't ask for, it, they didn't expect it, and all they can say is, "Kayli, Kayli, lama zaftani, why did you abandon me? Why did you neglect me? People sometimes end up in circumstances, physical or emotional, or psychological, or physical, or spiritual. And all they can say is, lama zaftani, if you're my God, why did you abandon me? And people often say the same words. I did. Nida, I did. Adlokasanair, I did. I'm a fine person. Nishtan I sidroi The world collapsed on me. Sometimes people face situations in the past or in the present of such adversity, of such incomprehensible pain and trauma, that they feel they ended up literally in base Hatzlamim and the shekhinah is gone. There's no glimmer of hope. I'm abducted and it's not even by choice. I didn't choose this, I didn't want this. And to the point that the Chazal say it's Hester. To the point that in the whole Megillah you won't find God's name mentioned even once. Strange phenomenon. It's a Sefer of Tanakh. There's not one book of Tanakh that doesn't have Hashem's name. It's all ultimately about the God's plan for the world. Even Shir Hashirim, the poem about love and relationships, has Hashem's name. Rishafei, Rishvay shall have his Yutke, besides one. Megillus Esther. The whole story is a story of Ashgaha pratis, A story of divine providence. Why after the story doesn't Marduch I say, Baruch Hashem. <laughs> Esther, Baruch thank God. Nothing garnished. They make Ayam Tifle Shmoyach Manas Matanas with Mishtivus Simcha. Three chapters we have to hear about the party and this party and Shushan are doing this and this and that. Not one word. God did, thank God. Nothing. Nothing of Hashem's name mentioned? So the Arizal says, if you do the acronyms, if you do the acronyms, you'll see God. For example, Esther turns to Hashem and say, Let the king, together with Homon come to the party. That's where God is. As Esther invites Haman to the party and the Jews look at her as a traitor. That's where Hashem is. But the truth is, that's the whole story of Megillus Esther. That there's a situation in which you don't see Shem Hashem. You don't see a divine plan. You don't see divine revelation. You don't see a divine name. You don't see divine providence. All you see is Kaylee Kaylee You're gone. Loma'azavtameh. The chiddish, the revolution of Esther was going into that place knowing That a Jewish woman and a Jewish girl, and by extension every single Jew, has that ability that sometimes you're sent into a situation, that's unfathomable, it's incomprehensible, I don't get it, I don't understand it, I don't know how, I don't know why. The last thing you do at that moment is, you see yourself as a depressed and despondent victim. Rather, there is a concealed and very powerful opportunity and mission here that you were sent on to the point that going into that place, you don't have to run, you don't have to deny, you don't delegitimize yourself, you don't have to enter into depression or despondency, but appreciate the fact that in this place, it may require prayer, it may require fasting, it may require tears, it may require thought, but in this very place, you were sent, and you were sent in order to transform it, and to create, la yehudim Haysa'ira. Vesimcha, vikar, afreilach to each and every one of you. You still don't understand? You know what? Let me let me put it differently. I'm going to give you the answer that Diran, Rabbeinu Nisim, gives. Diran, the one of the great rishonim. This is what he tells us. He says, "You're asking how was Esther allowed to go to the king? Yeah. You have to choose death instead of adultery. It's not like you have a situation. Yeah." Ahasuerus puts a gun to her head and says, either you kill this person, either you you murder this Jew, or I kill you. So the halach is, you can't choose murdering somebody over death, you have to choose death. So you're saying, Ahasuerus put a gun to her head and says, either you choose death, or you choose adultery. Instead of choosing death, she chose adultery. You want to know why she chose adultery? No, she didn't choose anything. Everything was forced. Achishverish is the king. He's a dictator. He's a tyrant. He takes her. There's nothing she should she could do. The Gemara asks the question. Your question. The Gemara asks. You could look it up. Talmud Tractate Sanhedrin, page seventy four B. Daf Ayn Dalat Amid Why did Esther not sacrifice her life? Why did Esther go along with this? And the Gemara gives two answers. One is Vabaya and one Rava. Rava says Karka heisa," which some explain it to mean that Esther was completely passive. She was not actively involved in this relationship. Achashveresh did what he did, but she was passive. Of course, she was passive, she's not obligated to forfeit his life. That's one explanation. There's the other explanation. Explanation I just said earlier from the Iran, Rabbeinu Nissim. And he basically says that the idea is that she wasn't given a choice between adultery and death. She was basically, she basically had no choice. Achashverish is the king. He's a tyrant. He's a dictator. He could do, he could do what he wants. He basically made a decree that every woman that he wants could come and he forced Achashverish to come. He forced Esther to come. So it wasn't like he said, Either you do this, or I kill you. And now the question is, why did she choose this over death? She should have chosen death. It wasn't about a choice. <laughs> there was no choice given to her. She was taken by the king. Yeah, And that was it. That, that was the issue. To say that she has to go commit... Why should she not commit suicide? Well, the, the commentators discussed this. That could be uh, Esther Felt, perhaps... You don't just commit suicide. If there if you have to kill yourself, you kill yourself. But if not, you don't. And, and maybe Esther felt there was a, there was submission here. There was a mysterious plan here. There's another explanation in Gemara. The explanation of Rava, who says that since Achashverosh was doing this for his own benefit, he wasn't trying to have her violate Yiddishkeit. Transgress Judaism, it was called LaHanas atzmer, it was for his benefit, it was completely his own enjoyment. There was no other agenda, he didn't even know she's Jewish, so then there's also no obligation for her to forfeit her life. But in any case, this is a very large discussion in Alocha. what Esther was thinking. As far as the issue of uh, of if she, had, if, if she ever came back, well, as I said before, v'chasher avadati avadati, that she understood that once she's engaging in a relationship with Achashverish willingly, she won't be able to go back to Mardechai. Usually, the Gemara says she could be by Achashverish and then she could go back to Mardechai. In fact, the Gemara says in Tractate Megillah, page 13, that, that Esther spent time with the king and then Toiveles, she would submerge in water. She would go to the Mikveh. She would bathe and then she would go back. She would go to the bosom of Mardechai. But once she's going in willingly, that would end. Now, the interesting question is, did that indeed happen? In other words, could Esther go back to Or No, she had relations with Achashverosh. The story is not clear. Did Achashverosh just stretch out the scepter or not? The Marsha, over there, Maseches Megillah, page 13, clearly learns that uh, Esther was together with Achashverosh willingly, and therefore she couldn't go back to Mardechai. Right. Were their children? Well, that's a big discussion, Yeah. Uh, According to some sources, Achashveresh and, and, uh, and, uh, and Esther had a baby, right? Daryavish, Daryovish, or Kairish, or Cyrus. There's different perspectives. It's not so clear. There's a big debate about it. But it's accepted by many, many commentators that they had a child, Daryovish. Well, that's my point. My, my whole point was that Esther may have not had children of her own that she could call... Jewish children whom she's raising in a Jewish community as part of the Jewish people. That's true. But let's remember, every Jewish child forever is really Esther's child. Every Jewish child is her child because she sacrificed her whole life and she jeopardized jeopardized her life that the Jewish people should remain alive. And she was successful. So for the rest of generations, every child in a way is Esther's child. And when Esther breathed her last, she knew that. She could look at her life and say, the Jewish people are alive. They have survived. They are thriving. They will be here forever. And every child she could take credit for. This is also the explanation. The Gemara says that like Purim is like a second Matantara. There was the first Matantara and then there was a new Matantara. Like, what's the meaning of this? Because it was a new era. The first time there was revelation, everything was revealed. Now it's Hester, it's concealment. Esther goes into a palace. Kaylee, Kaylee, Lama, And yet, she discovers that there's a covenant, there's a relationship, there's a mission. And in many ways, that's the powerful new matan a new covenant that's created in the times, the times of Purim. Yeah. The fast of Esther? The two explanations. Well, there's really two ways of looking at Titanus Esther. One explanation is that we fast because of the three days that Esther said we should fast. That would make sense. Then the name would make sense. However, many of the Mepharshim explain that that cannot be the reason we fast in Yod Gimel Adar because that has to do with a tightness that happened in the month of Nisan, in the month of, by the time of Pesach. So you could say, you could answer, you could say that they made it a month earlier. punkt Erev Purim. But as I said, the Avud Raham, Rabbeinu David Avud Raham, in his Tfilos, he has, he has a Siddur. In his Seder of Tfilos and Tinius, he explains and he says that it's not connected to that. It's not connected to the fast of Esther, which happened on Pesach, where they fasted for three days. This is also discussed in the Beis Yosef. The Beis Yosef discusses this. The Bach discusses this. This is in Tur, Oire in Simon Tophresh Peivov. This is discussed at length. And the point that all of these great halacha commentators make is that the reason we fast in Yud Gimel Adr is because on that day it was Nikhalu al nafsham. The Jewish people gathered to besiege Hashem for their victory because they had to fight a war of self-defense. And they made a tainus. They had to make a tainus because when we go to war, we make a tainus. And this says clearly in Madrush. There's a Madrush Tanchuma in Parshish Bereshish. Beresh chapter Gimel. You could look it up, Medrash Tanchum, it says that they, decre- they decreed a fast on Yud Gimel Adr. I mentioned also the Sheiltas. The Sheiltas comes from the Goinim, from Rabbi Chai Goyin. and the Sheiltas, chapter 67, Samach Zayan, Rabbi Chai Goyin says that they made a fast on the 13th day of Adr. Yes, in fact, the Sheil even tells us that this fast continued even during the time of the Beis HaMikdash. It's fascinating. During the time of the Beis HaMikdash, the second Beis HaMikdash, they used to fast on Yud Gimel Adar because in the time of Esther they made a fast on that day. It's fascinating, yeah. which, which is a Geval echidish because it means that it was not instituted later. It was instituted much, much, uh, much, much earlier. As I mentioned, the Gemara Megillah Dav Beis says that Yud Gimel Adir is Man Kehilo koil It's a time for the gathering of Klal Yisrael. So one interpretation is they gathered to war, they gathered to battle. Nikalu, they came, to, they mobilized for battle. But another explanation, in Tosus Rebbeinu says, no, they gathered together it was a day of of tainis, of prayer, of slichais, of a of, of fasting, of beseeching Hashem to be victorious, to be victorious, and. Yet it's called Tynus Esther, the fast of Esther, when apparently it's not really connected to Esther. I mean, Esther is the one who got permission from Ahasuerus that the Jews should be able to fight the wars. But ultimately, this fast has nothing to do with Esther. It has to do with Claus Yisrael who came together to fast because that's what we do. We fast on a day of war in order to besiege Hashem, and that's why we say Slichais. and we uh, we give tzedakah and we we daven to Hashem for success. So this was this was the 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 the, the big chiddush that based on the Toysefta and Tainas and right? I mentioned Toysefta and in chapter 2 and the Shulchan Aruch Erechaim Sim and Tav I think that those who actually have to fight and go to war, they're not allowed to fast. They don't want to weaken their vigor and their stamina. And therefore, since every single Jew had to defend himself or herself, so therefore nobody was allowed to fast on Yidgemalad. It was always, by everybody, it was only a commitment. It was potential. It was theoretical. It was not actual. Besides one, Jew or one Jewess, and that is Esther, who was a lot of fast, do you understand that yeah, so this is a big this is a big discussion in ainam and there is why exactly do we why exactly do we fast no well the question is why is it called tinus Esther why is it called tinus Esther the fast of Esther yeah well if well let's listen it's very interesting because if you look. You know, you know why was Esther protected? Well, it says it in the Megillah. In in, in chapter four, Mordechai tells Esther, "Don't think you're going to escape to the palace, and you will avoid the fate of all of the Jewish people." In other words, what is Mordechai clearly saying? That if Esther remains in the palace, she will not be targeted she will remain alive. And she may think, oh, let me stay in the palace, I'm going to stay alive. So Mardachai said, no, 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 if you remain silent, the Jewish people are going to be saved anyway. But what do we see here clearly from Mardachai's words? That in the palace was a place of refuge. Nobody's walking into the palace and murdering Esther. That means Esther did not have to defend herself on Yud Gimel So therefore, she was the one who fasted. So this is a Geval Dekechidosh, because that means that on the actual day of Yud Gimel the Jewish people davened for victory, but who was allowed to fast, and who can actually spend the day in prayer, and in fasting, only one Jew, Esther, she represented the whole Klael Yisrael as the Yom Kehila, where all the other Jews could only fast after Purim, after they came back from war, and they celebrated, then they could make up and compensate for their resolution on the day of war, and they can actually fast, right.